0: ebola is spreading what's the impact on businesses and supply chains around the globe hi everybody i'm bob bowman managing editor of supply chain brain and this is the supply chain brain podcast The Ebola virus is raging in at least three African countries and has recently made appearances in the U.S. as well. In response, we've seen the implementation of some travel restrictions and the designation of five U.S. airports as screening sites for foreign visitors who are at risk of carrying the disease. At the same time, we're confronted with a number of unanswered questions about the virus and its ability to spread within supposedly secure populations. But the scariest thing about the crisis might be the reaction of a public that doesn't fully understand the nature of the disease, according to my guest today, John Rose, Chief Operating Officer of iJet International. He discusses the actual global security risk that the Ebola outbreak poses to companies and their employees. And he outlines the elements of a proactive business continuity plan. So here is my conversation with John Rose. John Rose, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for being with us to talk about this crucial subject of the Ebola contagion that's now spreading faster than I guess anyone thought it might. I want to talk about the implications of the Ebola spread for businesses, for supply chains, for individuals, and for travel. But could you bring me up to date, first of all, on just how the situation is shaping up as of this very moment?
1: Well, there's actually some positive and, of course, some negative to it. The positive is there's been a few countries that have been declared Ebola-free. Senegal and Nigeria have been declared as Ebola-free. Fortunately, in the last week, there hasn't been any additional outbreaks in the United States or any other countries outside of the three predominant areas in West Africa. However, those three areas, it is still spreading at a very disturbing rate, and uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better in those areas. What has also happened, a number of countries have put travel restrictions or travel bans on from people coming from those three uh, impacted countries, and that's created a number of issues at airports, not severe issues, but there's going to be longer lines that are screening the individuals coming for those countries and designated Airports that they're even allowed to fly into just yesterday. The United States said that if you're coming from one of those areas, you can only fly into five specific airports, which was Chicago, Atlanta, uh, Dallas and D.C., uh, JFK and Newark were the five that were designated in the U.S. So they can be uh, pulled aside for secondary screening, which I think made a lot of people feel better about it. But that's still causing question and concern. There's a lot not known about the disease, the spread of the disease, the potential vaccinations. I know there's a number of different test vaccinations that are being tried and to see if they actually work. So it's good that everyone has came to uh, the forefront of trying to combat this. You know, it took a long time to get to this point. A lot of people are asking questions. Why? I mean, that's not that doesn't help with the solution. What we have to focus on now is a solution.
0: Okay, it's three countries, though, that currently are identified as being of greatest risk in terms of uh, origin countries, correct? Just three?
1: That's correct, because with Nigeria and and Senegal being declared Ebola-free, you know, it's Sierra Leone, it's Liberia, and it's Guinea. And it's especially Sierra Leone and Liberia are the ones that get most of the press because that's where it's growing at an exponential rate. And, of course, the fatality rate is so high. And the other thing that terrifies the average person who doesn't work in the medical field is the questions that we're being asked every day why do healthcare workers get this so easily? That's the terrifying part. These people are wearing containment suits, sometimes two levels of containment suits that are beyond even the requirements to do the treatment of individuals with Ebola, yet they're getting sick, such as the two uh, nurses in Texas that got sick. So it's a very scary scenario where there's a lot of questions being asked, and because the answers don't necessarily add up to the consumer that's listening to those explanations, then there becomes disbelief, and, they, and then that, of course, spreads in panic because people fear what they don't understand.
0: And to, in addition to which they often overreact to stories like this, and I'm does that not lead people to be concerned? You mentioned just the three countries, but is there not a public perception to some degree that any flight from Africa, from any African country is at risk?
1: Well, absolutely that's there because you've had some very high figures, political, aspirational types, and I won't mention names, but they've came out on national television and said that exact statement. So, of course, it spreads fear. Uh, I have been, and iJet has been, spreading the word about Ebola for a considerable period of time. I mean, there was people I talked to more than a year ago before this outbreak happened that said, what's your biggest fear? And I said, a highly lethal infectious disease like Ebola and I'm not scared of getting the disease. I'm scared of the reaction to the disease and what that could mean from a global security implication standpoint, whether it's underreaction or overreaction to the point. That's what scares me. And it's like there's a lot of Hollywood movies about scary zombie things and and, and silliness like this. But at the heart of some of the better written ones, it's not about the actual apocalypse. It's about the human reaction to the scenario is what makes it actually scary. And I think we have seen this when, you know, when it was said in June that it won't get into the United States and then it got into the United States and people quit believing and they start overreacting. And of course you see some scary things on the news uh, about, you know, situations such as quarantining a cruise ship, and individuals traveling that were told not to travel, and of course, that spreads additional fear how they can contract the disease. So, it's our job to help mitigate what we call the myths of Ebola, but then also help companies come up with the plans because you have to have the plan. Whether you think you can get Ebola or not is not the real heart of the situation. Can Ebola impact your operation? And that means your business travelers, your supply chain, even your facilities. I mean, if you're in an area, if you were in Dallas or Cleveland last week, you were very fearful that they could actually close down an entire area in quarantine. What does that mean? And what are your action plans? What's your pandemic plan? What's your business continuity plans? And that's the questions companies are asking that are far more relevant to the situation.
0: So it's the public response to the disease, justified or not, that causes iJet to say that the virus is a greater cause of concern for global security than ISIS,
1: right? Well, yes, it's that reaction because you've got situations happening at home. Uh, ISIS is definitely a global threat but it's a threat to a very specific region with the, obviously the potential for terror acts outside of it that's a given but that you know any terror act can happen anywhere but they can be very isolated very small most people even the horrible accident that i mean incident went went down in canada yesterday most americans do not go to work with any type of fear of isis they're scared of ISIS gaining control in certain parts of the Middle East, but no one's going to work today, even with what happened in Canada. And there's no connection to ISIS yet that I have seen in the official uh, communication, so I don't want to draw that connection. But they do know it was uh, an individual who had a beef with the Canadian government fighting against ISIS. But the average worker does not go into work fearing that. The average worker was questioning the fear of getting Ebola after it tested positive in Texas. And then it tested positive for a second person in Texas. And that individual traveled that was potentially contagious at that time. Now, there's no proof that they've infected anybody, but the fear hit. So as soon as that fear hit, that's what gets us to the point of saying, this is a a more real threat to your operation. Most companies are not drawing up business contingency plans around ISIS unless they do business in very specific regions of the world. But because of Ebola, they have to have a business contingency plan for anywhere. Because what happens if the Frankfurt airport completely shuts down and quarantines? Likely? No. Possibility? Absolutely. What if a passenger comes in that's Ebola positive and they want to make sure they, they lock it down? And I just use Frankfurt as a, as a random example. That could be Newark, that could be, be Tokyo, anywhere in the world that a situation could happen and do you have a plan to mitigate around that or if a, what if a port's closed because again you have a threat of a positive test or a positive test so shipping can't go out for a period of time what are your contingency plans to move to the next port well most companies have some sort of plan have you dusted it off because as we often say you're only as good as the last time you ran an exercise of that plan it's like a fire drill in your building your chances of having a fire and you're building a remote, but you have a lot of protocols and alarms and sprinkler systems and everything that the employees need to know to do in case that alarm gets pulled. It's the same. You have to have a plan because then when it does happen, you can act on it. And now it's a foreseeable situation again, because it's happened in the United States. It happened in Spain. It's gotten into random areas like Nigeria and uh, Dakar where an individual came in with the disease, obviously they locked it down in case of Nigeria, I think it's a pretty good example of how a large economy, because they're the largest economy in Africa was able to put in some pretty strict measures, you know, military escorts, closing down of areas, and they controlled the disease in a very populated country. So I think they deserve some kudos about how they interacted with the international community and locked it down. And uh, that brings some positives, but again, the fear spread. So, you know, just yesterday they announced those five airports, and I got immediately got messages saying, "Well, should I avoid going through those airports?" And of course, we're going to give them the real facts behind it. That, that doesn't mean those airports are now highly susceptible to getting Ebola. It's quite the opposite. They have now got a designated area. If anybody comes in from those countries, that they can screen them quickly to make sure. They might not have the potential of becoming positive. We believe there's a pretty good lockdown to keep people from traveling that are actually already positive.
0: That might be the case at these airports, but how do you prevent people from, from just stopping at a second or third country before they enter this country? So their, their first uh, origin country is to enter the U.S. is not one of those three, but they might have started out there.
1: Well, and that's the way our system is designed to track where they originated. Now, of course, there could be breaks in there if they've had significant breaks in time. Yes, that is true, but that's a big part of what our government's job is to do is to know the inbound traffic. Now, of course, like you said, there could be multiple stops. So say somebody went to Europe and stopped there for long periods of time. So what we've also got to track, what are the inbound regulations for those type of travelers into those countries? So a lot of countries have placed travel restrictions. I believe is 29. I, I haven't looked at it yet this morning or this afternoon. Now, of how many have those restrictions? So, just because somebody's coming from Spain, but if Spain's got travel restrictions, we know that they have screened them to get into Spain, and they spent a week in Spain before they came to the United States. So, can someone still slip through the cracks in this? Absolutely. But we've at least put protocols in place. And I believe that's what the president came out and said last week. We don't want to put a travel ban on these areas because that's actually going to encourage people to try to go around the system to get into the United States as opposed to we want to put in proper protocols to check everyone coming in. Because somebody who wants to come in the United States in that area wants to go through the proper protocols. Even the individual that came through positive, whether he lied or not, I mean he's deceased now, but he came through – he admitted where he came from. There was never a denial that he came from that part of, of West Africa. It was a fact that he got through while he was still in the incubation phase before he, he, he became truly ill in Texas. But we want people to openly disclose. So what the president did had a very specific reason behind it, whether you agree or disagree. is That's not our point. Our point is to acknowledge what is in place and will those measures help? We believe they will help, but that still doesn't necessarily completely eliminate the risk, as you just said. What if someone in, came in through another area? That creates a, a definite problem. Uh, you know, There's all kinds of other situations, especially with ports, ships. I mean, that's one of the big fears after what happened with Carnival. People were starting to ask, well, what about, we're always hearing about refugees on ships going from Africa to Europe. We got a lot of questions about that. How are those type of ships being quarantined because they don't have any type of situation for the outbound. And, you know, we tried to explain a lot of that because, you know, they're not coming from those areas in West Africa, but people are asking the questions, well, what if they traveled through within Africa to get to these? And and, and they are legitimate questions that have to be asked.
0: So if we go toward the direction of coming up with good contingency plans. I want to ask you first, though, in terms of the response of businesses and the response to the public in general, have we learned any lesson lessons from previous pandemics or epidemics, any of the various flu epidemics that have come down in the years past or cholera or whatever? Have they taught us anything?
1: Well, I think they taught us a lot. I think what's awful is very little of it was actually implemented. I've seen some of the Very detailed pandemic plans around some of the recent flu scares, H1N9 was the most uh, notable one, where there were professionals going into companies and saying, it's not unrealistic 60% of your workforce could call in sick. Do you have a plan? Because I assume you can't operate normally with 60% of your people gone. Companies looked at this for a little while, but it never came to fruition, so they kind of ignored it. And what has happened is sometimes you need something of this magnitude of fear to help companies create real plans. You know, the horrific events of 9-11 forced a lot of institutions to come up with real plans. And it's horribly unfortunate that you need a catastrophic event to happen to slap some people into place. But that's what happens. And this is a good example. I mean... SARS was not all that different. Now, the difference was, I mean, from the severity of the disease, the quick, it was actually spread easier than Ebola by a lot, but how quickly it was locked down and stamped out, most of us have forgotten SARS. SARS was frightening at the moment, but because they felt everything was under control, it calmed down relatively quickly, and then companies didn't write the pandemic plans. And it's shocking how many companies don't have good. Now, some have great pandemic plans. I do not want to paint a wide brush and say everybody doesn't have this because there's a lot of companies have great plans. And there's a lot of companies that are scrambling for plans today about how to write them, who should help us write them, who should help us practice them, because you have to run, again, those drills. You have to have tabletop exercises to plan for the worst. I mean, most companies that live at with offices in earthquake zones have great earthquake plans. Companies in Florida and here on the eastern seaboard have a lot of hurricane plans because they've they've happened, and they've happened at horrific levels. And I don't even mean it has to be at the level of Hurricane Katrina. We had, you know, was it Sandy here just a couple of years ago? It was like almost exactly two years ago here in Maryland. You have those things. They create actions. The Boston bombings, companies created action because of something like that, now we've got Ebola helping them drive into action because they're looking at far broader than just their travelers. They're looking at their facilities, their supply chains, because all of that could be impacted or disrupted. And how do we just work around it?
0: Everything is reactive. So maybe, maybe as you point out, maybe a little bit of fear is not a bad thing as it's long as not, it doesn't lead to overreaction.
1: Exactly. A little bit of fear is not a bad thing. Panic, that's a bad thing. Fear, you should have, and fear is a choice. So they've chosen to be scared of it because they didn't have a plan, but fear then can be mitigated through having a good plan that then becomes preparation. So there's always going to be danger. You can mitigate against danger. You can plan enough to remove the fear. When panic happens, then nothing good happens. And that's what we've had with Ebola. The fear part of it, is actually good to help drive companies into making the right decision and coming up with a better plan, coming up with access to medical professionals that can give them real-time advice. That's something we're seeing on a regular basis. They want to have quick access to somebody saying, hey, what happens if we have somebody walk into one of our plants, they're sick, and They've admitted they've been to one of these West African companies and countries in the last ninety days. That's happened in a couple of companies throughout the world in different facilities. None of them were positive. Want to make that clear. But they want to be able to quickly ask somebody, hey, we've got a plan, but I want a medical professional also giving me up-to-date advice. What's our best plan of action? We want to tell our employees, because they know we're enacting our, you know, business contingency plan around a pandemic threat in a factory. But I also want a doctor on the phone that's able to talk to this at a level that makes everyone feel better, or at least that they've got the best advice possible to make the proper reactions as opposed to us making, again, a panic reaction, which isn't helpful.
0: Okay, well, let's talk short-term uh, measures, first of all. How do you respond if an employee is diagnosed with Ebola?
1: Well, if, if you've got an employee diagnosed with Ebola, then you have to follow everything within your plan that says, okay. You have to talk to the medical professionals. When was the individual positive? Just like they did the situation in Dallas. When was she potentially positive? Who is everyone they enact? And, of course, your first thing is you've got to notify the CDC, you've got to notify all the authorities appropriately. I mean, they'll know that the person has tested positive Ebola because of the U.S.'s scrutiny on this now. And then it's the communication down to all of your employees. If there's individuals that have to be questioned maybe even screened and quarantined, which we've seen in Dallas. Actually, all of that went through the protocols exactly as it should have, and none of those people were positive uh, that, that had, had came in contact with the individuals that that did have Ebola. But then it has to do with, well, do we have to close down this facility? What's our work around for short periods of time? What if we have employees afraid to go to work? That's a plan that has nothing to do with the actual disease. That has to do with the fear factor. We have to mitigate the fear. Maybe some companies' appetite is, yes, we do want to allow working from home for this period of time. Or if schools are going to close in the area, which happened in the two cities last week, okay, we're going to let employees work from home. I'm not saying that's our suggestion for everybody. That may be their culture says this is what we want to do to make our employees feel better because one of their coworkers was positive, which, again, happened in Texas So they want to make sure everyone feels as safe as possible and the minimal risk to exposure, but you also want to have frequent updates. This is how the disease is spread. You're at almost no risk. Of course, you can't say zero risk because that's when you get in trouble when you make absolute statements, you know, that's again, like the one in June that said Ebola will never get in the U S was an absolute statement and was absolutely wrong. So, there's a number of things around getting Ebola, and that's not the biggest part of the epidemic or pandemic plans. The bigger part is what happens if an area is affected, such as Dallas. I mean, we had calls coming in last week, well, we're 20 miles from Dallas. We think we should just close all facilities and work from home. Well, we have to go through that. Is that even realistic? Is that complete overreaction and overkill It's going to lose productivity? Again, we walk them through so the company has the most meaningful and actionable information to make the best decision because it's ultimately their risk appetite and the decision. They don't want to put employees in harm's way, of course, but there's different levels of risk appetite, such as where, you know, one country will travel to Senegal today. There's other companies that have banned all air travel and you know that, and we know those who've seen them in the news. So it's not like I'm, you know, coming up with something that's, that's, that's uh, not public knowledge, but different companies are reacting to this differently.
0: All right. So, so that's the, kind of the short-term side of it. But I'm interested if you could just, we just have a few more minutes, and I'm interested if you could just kind of sketch out for me, what are the major elements of a proactive contingency plan that companies should have in place in advance of any such events occurring?
1: Well, the big thing there is looking at all the historical type of events, whether that's pandemics, terrorist actions, natural disasters, things that have happened or are reasonably going to happen you know, flooding because of rising sea levels. And then it's having the plan and conducting these exercises that are company-wide exercises to have a great plan in place, because it's our experience. If you have a plan and practice it, it's going to cost X when it actually happens. If you don't practice it, it's going to cost 10X when it actually happens. And it's going to cost 10X of that if you have no plan. So you're actually looking at a multiple of 100 if you don't have a good plan in place. I mean, if you don't have any plan in place and practice it. There's also the financial component of it, looking at it, but you're only as good as the last time you've ran the exercises and and tested it and got all the appropriate departments in the company involved because so many departments own a portion of this. And that's where a lot of companies fail. They think, well, this just resides with human resources or this resides with risk or this resides with security. When in reality, it touches almost every major line within a company, getting all of them to the table to understand the ownership and the process is also a key thing all the way up to the board.
0: Certainly in the case of a supply chain, it is by definition a function that involves so many different disciplines that you really have to bring everybody together. I take it that there's going to be some manual sitting around that everyone has access to, but it just can't sit on a shelf, too. How often should these exercises be held?
1: We Well, it depends upon the size of the company and their type of business. Some need to have quarterly exercises Everybody needs to review everything annually and run through an assessment of that plan at least annually. We recommend quarterly, and they can be different types of ones quarterly. One should maybe address pandemics. The next one addresses natural disaster. Next one addresses violence in the workplace because, you know, active shooter, whatever it might be.